0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witz University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about, well, the work that you're doing. And I think a lot of people may not be familiar that in addition to your passion project that you do here on the China Africa Project, you, like me, we also have day jobs that we must attend to. Your day job actually is a lot more interesting than mine, I think, because you get to watch Kung Fu movies, and you get to kind of think about (laughs) Chinese media, and you get to think about Asian media as a whole. After all, you are a specialist in Asian media and the impact that it has not only in Africa but around the world. And uh, Kobus recently came out with a fascinating paper that was just published in the Journal of African Cultural Studies, watching Hong Kong martial arts film, under apartheid. And we're going to talk today not only about the period under apartheid, but Hong Kong uh, movies and kung fu movies, Bruce Lee, you know, Jet Li, maybe Jet Li is a little bit more modern, but you know the, the, the genre of Hong Kong and Chinese kung fu movies in Africa. So first of all, congratulations on getting the paper published. Uh, that's always a big Thank accomplishment. You. you. know, For those of us not in academia, we don't really value it that much. But in academia, that's a big deal.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it took a while. I'm, I'm very grateful to finally have it out.
0: So you know, the title of the paper was "Watching Hong Kong Martial Arts Film Under Apartheid." Why did you pick just the apartheid era, and what was special about that era with relation to kung fu movies? See, I chose the apartheid
1: era because that's when Hong Kong movies arrived in, in South Africa to begin with. So there is Hong Kong movies are, and especially you know, kind of the, the Hong Kong kung fu movies are popular all. Over Africa, um, and there's, a, there's been very, very little research done on why. Um, it's actually these movies are remarkably popular. They, they, you know, they arrived in the 70s and they've been consistently popular up to now. Um, so I spoke with people who uh, run cable TV, uh, big cable TV expansion in um, in Africa, and they told me that even now um it is difficult to launch a new uh cable tv package in an african country if you don't include one dedicated kung fu channel so you know kind of they they remain amazingly popular um and you know i, I chose that part because that is it was
0: simultaneously this kind of Crazy time in
1: South Africa, but it was also a moment where um, when these movies actually first arrived in South Africa.
0: Well, before we get to the modern era, which I do want to talk about, let's talk about the apartheid era. First, for those of uh, people in our audience, because now apartheid, it's a long time ago. I mean, you may remember it from your childhood, uh, but we're getting now to, you know, it ended, correct me if I'm wrong, around 1990, 1991, with the freeing of, of Nelson Mandela and the kind of F.W. de Klerk, who was the former, I think he was the president at the time he ended yes. apartheid give us a little bit of background about what was apartheid and when did it end and then we can kind of slot in the hong kong kung fu kind of theme into that
1: so apartheid the 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 word has come to mean simply people being kept separate um, and but but the, the the system was that and more it was a system of of segregation um, but it was also an economic system um, where where the segregation worked with other kinds of, of very militarized control to lock black people into particular kind of sectors of the labor industry in South Africa. So it made life, you know, kind of traditional life almost impossible. Um, and then it, it made people, it, it kept people locked in doing the hardest work for the worst, the worst wages um, and not being able to vote within their own country. Um, so, um, you know, it ended, as you said, it, it started transitioning um, in 1999 um, and, uh, you know, kind of the first the first democratic election was in 94 um, And the first, uh, you know, kind of democratic uh, constitution Which is now seen as one of the world's most progressive constitutions Actually started in, in 1996 Yeah, so it um, yeah, was so about what, 20 al- years ago
0: Almost 27 years ago, actually And that yes, was, yes. so that's a long time So we have a whole generation now in South Africa That has grown up, you know, post-apartheid and in many ways, you know, obviously young generations, they may not appreciate the history, uh, but it's still very much a present feeling in South Africa. Apartheid is a concept that is is very much talked about, you know, not on a daily basis, but it's very much in the kind of the, the, the body politic, right?
1: Yes, because it created the physical environment of people's lives. You know, so people people are... People now you, you know kind of have to still get up at like three in the morning to be able to make it to work at five you know kind of five in the morning um, in the inner city because they are still living in places where their their parents were were dumped by the apartheid government so it it completely shaped the physical environment of South Africa which means it keeps shaping the daily lives of people even though the system itself has officially ended.
0: okay well now let's take this. You know this 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 phenomena of of Hong Kong kung fu movies, and for those who are not familiar, Hong Kong for a long time was one of the three pillars or four pillars of the global movie industry. Obviously, there's Hollywood; everybody knows about Hollywood. Uh, then there's Bollywood, which is uh, you know India's movie industry, which cranks out just an enormous volume of movies every year, and they've been doing so for decades. Then there's Nollywood, which is obviously Nigeria's movie industry, and Hong Kong. Hong Kong for a long time in Asia, especially North Asia, was the center. And what they did, what they did better than almost anybody else, were two types of, well, there's maybe three or four, but we'll focus on two. One was the Kung Fu, and that was most celebrated by Bruce Lee. Everybody kind of knows from the 70s as, you know, he really kind of brought it to a whole new level. But then there are also these crime genres that were also very popular. And and then the traditional Chinese soap operas from the ancient period and whatnot. All of that was being done by companies like ATV and TVB in Hong Kong. Uh, But of all of the different genres, Kung Fu had the international appeal, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in Africa, all over the world. What was it about the kung fu genre in the apartheid era that people latched on to for entertainment?
1: To get to that, you need to go back a little bit. So there's two things you need to keep in mind about about movie watching under apartheid. One was that censorship was crazy, so the the whole country was censored a lot, and then black people were censored particularly. So there was actually different what what's called differential censorship systems, where 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 black audiences like conveniently you know kind of isolated by by segregation, then there were certain things that white audiences could watch that. Black audiences could not. Um, And there were all of these anxieties coming from British colonialism um, that that black audiences were particularly susceptible to violent content and therefore needed that they needed to be doubly censored. So so that was the one issue. So, you know, kind of black, black audiences suffered under censorship more than other audiences in South Africa. In the second place... Um, South South Africa has always been an Anglophone country, you know, kind of like after the end of Dutch colonialism. So because it was part of the empire, it was also then became part of the kind of American sphere of influence. And so there was a lot of Hollywood movies just flowing into South Africa. And South African movie exhibition and distribution was essentially set up to funnel Hollywood movies into South Africa. Um, To the extent that both both 20th Century Fox and um, MGM owned... Local uh, distribution chains in South Africa, um, which they then later sold off to apartheid era, um, apartheid uh, companies. So, um, you know, so so there was this this double thing where there was a lot of censorship and then a lot of Hollywood movies flowed in. So, um, which means a lot of Westerns. So all of these violent westerns were being watched here, even though at the same time, there was supposed to be this kind of differential censorship. So it's this kind of interesting historical puzzle about why that was allowed. The point that I make is that the fact that westerns westerns are inherently a white supremacist genre, right? So um, you know, if you watch a cowboy movie, most of the time, people of color are the villains. Right. Um, in, in a classical Hollywood Western, especially the one that, ones from the 1950s. So there, uh, you know, kind of being a Native American almost immediately turn you, turns you into being the enemy. Um, and the entire genre is made up to celebrate and chronicle the expansion of white power into an open, an open landscape. Um, so that played very well. With apartheid, like that kind of like white white supremacist, you know, kind of instinct of Hollywood cinema worked very very well under apartheid, and and black audiences learned a lot of very sophisticated movie watching techniques where they could enjoy these movies, which happened, which was the only fun they got to have in a week, um, while rooting for the people of color, while rooting against the hero of the movie. So it's this very kind of sophisticated way of refusing. The the meaning that the movie is trying to teach you, so fast forward to when when kung fu movies come. Suddenly these are people of color beating the crap out of white people, right? So this um, so it 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 completely changed the changed the game. Um, you you get to see amazing like spectacular violence, which was which was um, against the law and was censored for black audiences, and at the same time these are non-white people who get to be the heroes who get to to actually be this the kind of supreme fighter
0: now if that's the case if it really was this dynamic of non-whites kicking the crap out of white people and there was the censorship regime in south africa how were people able to watch these movies then well
1: the censorship regime started breaking down in the or, or started changing shape rather in in the in the late 70s what you see is a few things in the first place um, there was increasing. South Africa went crazy for shopping malls. South Africans love shopping malls. Even now, South Africa has more shopping malls than most places, um, and and that happened during the 1970s. So the kind of the rich white populations started moving out of this the center of the city um, towards shopping malls, and with them went. Cinemas. So the cinemas that were left in the in the poorer now inner city areas, those started slowly integrating, just in order to to try and, and you know kind of and survive economically. And that is where some of these movies were shown. So they weren't seen as as status products, which means they were to a certain extent ignored by the by the censorship industry or the censorship system. But the bigger thing was that VHS started and you know kind of the the for a while VHS flowed into the country before the, the censorship system got got their, this, their um, you know, kind of organization together to, to to censor VHS tapes. So there was a window where all of these video stores, video rental stores, started importing tons of, of cheap VHSs, a lot from Hong Kong, um, because that was where they could get them for cheap. Um, and so it set up this kind of archive of martial arts movies that ended up just being rented over and over and over. And the, and these video stores were frequently located very close to to areas where um, where taxis, which which ferried these kind of minibus taxis, which, which ferried um, black workers from townships to the city and back, um, were next to the the kind of gathering places for these taxis, and there were also little micro cinemas frequently it's like about four chairs around a tv set um and those were playing these tapes over and over and over and over and that kind of helped to build this kind of popularity so it essentially flew under the radar of the censorship system because of the change over to vhs
0: you're revealing your age you know when you say the word the letters vhs so comfortably you know i have a feeling that the vast majority of our (laughs) listenership has no idea what you're talking about a vhs tape and, and this is kind of funny i mean a vhs tape is this kind of Big clunky cassette that played for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. A full feature film could go onto it. It kind of emerged in the 80s as the dominant standard uh, from a battle that it had with the Sony Betamax, which was a, another form of cassette. Uh, and then for those of us growing up in the in the 70s and 80s, you know, VHS tapes were everything, and clearly they they had an impact. Uh, In South Africa. But I think it's interesting uh, how technology does play a role in all of this. And this is going to be our bridge now to the more modern era. So, you know, let's fast forward from the VHS time into DVDs and then obviously into the Internet. Talk to us a little bit about the effect that these movies have had. So you said... They, you know, they were a little bit controversial. They were rebellious in many natures. They went against the censorship regime. When people started watching these movies, was there any impact? Did it have any cultural influence in terms of how blacks saw their relationship to whites? Uh, You know, in looking at someone else in another part of the world, which incidentally, which is funny that let's talk about this very quickly, Hong Kong at that time was under British colonial rule. Now, there wasn't the type of, you know, apartheid in, in, in Hong Kong that you had in South Africa, but certainly there was rampant discrimination. There were, you know, signs on, uh, you know, stores and bars that said no dogs and no Chinese, only whites could live on the peak, which was the nice area of town in the mid-levels. And so in some ways there is this kind of symbiosis between Hong Kong Chinese culture under British colonial rule up until 1997. And it seems like the audience who was consuming this content uh, in other parts of the world affected by imperialism and colonialism and, you know, racial, you know, segregation.
1: Definitely, definitely. And there's actually this very celebrated scene in one of Bruce Lee's movies where he breaks one of these no dogs, no Chinese signs. Um, with you know, with his bare hands, um, and you know, it, 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 there is these kind of records of of audiences cheering um, Chinese diaspora audiences in the US cheering for this, and then also it becoming very popular among African American audiences in the US. Um, and so, yes, I think you know, I think Bruce Lee tapped into a, a kind of a, a global zeitgeist of decolonization, um, and he, he provided glamour you know, to that. Because before that, it was all very, very dutiful and hardworking and solidarity and fighting together. And, you know, um, but he provided a kind of a movie star sweetening to that, like together with with other kind of very glamorous people like Angela Davis and Che Guevara. Um, And, you know, so he... One has one, to, one cannot underestimate how, what a movie star Bruce Lee was. You know, kind of he was, in the first place, just astonishingly beautiful. Like, I, I, I think, I, I really think he was one of the most attractive male movie stars who's ever lived. Um, and physically, incredibly spectacular in terms of how he moved. You know, he, 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 he makes Gene Kelly look like a, a kind of a, you know, a, a luggard. Um, so it's, you know, the, the the kind of the power of movies star glamour was very important and the, its connection to to this kind of anti hegemonic revolutionary kind of um, energy that was running in the late 60s and early 70s. I think was was really important. And I think audiences picked up from that, um, you know, kind of he that they, they responded to him and that kind of established the genre in, you know, in, in the whole of, of Africa.
0: You know, it's interesting because when I watch a kung fu movie, uh, even the contemporary ones. One of the reasons why I think they're still so popular all over the world is they remind me a little bit of the telenovelas in, in, in South America and even some of the Indian television dramas, that they defy culture, that you, you can watch a kung fu movie and you can be from any part in the world and you can just love the fighting. They're short narratives. They have a very kind of simple narrative arc. There's a good guy and a bad guy. The bad guy undermines the good guy. The good guy fights back. The good guy wins. Very simple story. And that's, again, consistent with what we see in South America with the popularity of telenovelas, which are also seen around the world. And here in Vietnam, interestingly enough, you know, Indian dramas from ZTV and the like are also incredibly popular. And I think that's in part because you create stories which defy culture and and they can spread very, very quickly. And certainly Kung Fu is part of that. Bring us up to the contemporary era now. Um, In many ways, South Africa is a cultural trendsetter for at least the southern part of Africa. So what happens in Johannesburg tends to kind of migrate out culturally to other parts of Africa. Did you, in your research, come across the spread of Hong Kong kung fu movies in other parts of Africa, both in the earlier eras but also today?
1: There's been some research done on the popularity of um, of Hong Kong kung fu movies in Tanzania um, and, you know, kind of we're slowly seeing more of this research being done, but there's still a lot that needs to be done. You know, kind of I'm not, for example, sure what the position of these movies were in West Africa where, um, in West Africa, Indian movies had a lot of influence as well, and you, you can see direct influence of Indian movies on contemporary Nigerian movies. Um, so, you know, kind of I, I we we, I know anecdotally that there is, there's been a lot of popularity for Hong Kong cinema all over, all over Africa. But so far, I've not seen the actual numbers. Um, one of the difficulties of, the, of doing this is that. The people who imported this stuff, um, they're all gone. Like, you know, kind of they're either dead or in in the South African case, a lot of them immigrated or they work, they just don't work in movies anymore. Um, And so what, you know, kind of so it took a lot of of investigation to try and find these people. Like I I finally tracked down the one person who uh, by, uh, you know, some people told me he was the first person to start importing them. And it turned out that he died in this plane crash, which was one of the key kind of um, controversies and mysteries of, of apart, late Apartheid era, um, where this plane that was ferry, f- um, f- ferrying weapons, uh, in this case from Taipei to South Africa, um, ha- that had a cache of hidden weapons um, in, 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 in the hold, blew up and, and it kind of and, and went down um, and he happened to be on that plane which is insane um, and so you know so, so this research is really difficult to do um, and but I think it is very important I think it's it's, it's, it's important also for us because one of the, the important things about this is that so you, if you think about watching a Western right you watch a Western there's the, the shoot out there's the, the good guy the bad guy all of that, the morality of the Western takes place against the background of the American West, right? Kind of it takes place against the background of of the United States. The, the Hong Kong martial arts movie changed that. So, all of the issues about like you need to be loyal to your teacher, you need to avenge his death, you need to, you know, kind of like save his daughter, you're like, all, all of these kind of like basic, basic, kind of trite stories that drive kung fu movie plots, those are all located in China. So China provides the background, it provides the kind of moral weight, it provides the context of all of this stuff. So kung, kung fu movies provided, uh, is, gives us this very interesting kind of flip over of... You know, 20th century pop, pop culture globally being dominated by the West towards a 21st century pop culture, which is, which is where all of the meaning comes from a non-Western country and particularly from China. So I think that, you know, kind of that makes
0: them really historically really important. Well, it's interesting. So let's now look forward. We're in a new era of global entertainment. Uh, Certainly here in Asia and in other parts of the world, uh, Hollywood is competing now for attention very aggressively with Korean content. So it's Korean movies, Korean music, Korean kind of software – Uh, Korean, you know, entertainment that is really the driving force here in Asia. It hasn't spread yet to Africa as far as I know, but a couple key things are happening right now that I think are worth noting. Number one is Hong Kong itself is no longer the kind of entertainment capital of China. Uh, That now belongs to Shanghai, and it also belongs to a man uh, who runs uh, a group called Wanda Jitan, Wanda Group. Wanda, for those of you who are not familiar, is one of – he's the wealthiest – I forget his name. It's escaping me right now, and it's kind of embarrassing because I was supposed to go work for him. But uh, he um, – <laughs> which I chose not to, but uh, maybe because I keep forgetting his name. Uh, but Wanda you know, owns the largest movie theater chain in the United States. They just bought Legendary Entertainment in Los Angeles uh, in Hollywood. They're buying – they've just done a big deal with Sony. Uh, They, you know, are now the driver for the world's second largest movie market, which is China behind the United States. And it's expected that the box office in China will grow uh, to exceed that of the United States. Let's take the African kind of market now and kind of attach that. Uh, You see Star Times, which is the digital TV operator, and they are now pumping in more Chinese content, Chinese entertainment. And there's a big push by the government to promote China's soft power. Now, for the most part, the dramas that China has been trying to push in, which are these kind of historical dramas and these soap operas, to me is the wrong way to go. What I think they should be doing if the Chinese really want to grab hold of the African market for entertainment is pick up on what they did 30, 40 years ago. Which, well, not they, but at least Chinese culture did, which was Kung Fu. And these types of modern, kind of, again, the Jet Li. Uh, type of action movies. Uh, Do you see now, with the growth of the Chinese infrastructure in Africa, again, through things like Star Times, through social media networks like Baidu and, you know, search engines like Baidu and, you know, WeChat and Tencent, which is part of the Nashpers empire in South Africa, do you see a new era of Chinese movies and culture coming into Africa? Or is that just a pipe dream of propagandists in Beijing?
1: I don't see it yet, and it's a, it's an interesting kind of puzzle that I'm trying to work out. Because, as as you said, this seems to be so such a no-brainer, um, especially in the in the context of the Japanese government, who is pushing its pop culture heavily around the world. It's very interesting for me that the Chinese government, the PRC government, is not. Um, so they are the the Chinese embassies are doing some kung fu demonstrations. There's been these these kind of like acrobatic kung fu live action kung fu shows have been brought in some with which seems to me with some kind of state support, but so far we've not seen the pushing of the movies themselves. Um, part of it might be that one of the problems that that I saw that. Some of my other research is about the, how the way that the Japanese do this stuff, and one of the big problems was that Japanese diplomats just did, didn't know anything about media. You know, kind of they didn't know anything about all this animation that everyone was crazy about. So it took a bunch of consultants to actually to to train the Japanese diplomats into actually knowing what when they're talking about animation. So that might be one problem that the, the diplomats and the embassies just simply have no idea about movies. The other problem might be that the that the Chinese government is sees this stuff as trivial um you know keep in mind that the the, the media that they did push in Africa is very sober 24 hour news um There's nothing exciting about CCTV news, you know, I mean, you know, they're, they're very like, like they're explicitly and on purpose boring, you know, so they're, they're trying to look super serious and super responsible. And so being badly dubbed kind of, and flying through the air and like, you know, kind of fighting, fighting with, you know, kind of hopping vampires and demons. And that's not the kind of image they want to project. So it might be that they're trying that they, that that might come later, um, But it might also be that the PRC government is just in that space at the moment where they just can't – they can't show any kind of sense of humor. Which is really really
0: too bad because the Chinese filmmaking now has gotten so good. I mean it is just mind-bogglingly good. I mean the special effects, the stories – so much of it rival anything that comes out of Hollywood now. And that's in part because there's a massive domestic market now for it that actually can support it. It's not just the state back in the old days. You know, we're talking the 70s, 80s. The only people making movies in China was the Communist Party. And, of course, they looked like driver's education movies. They were terrible. But today, that's a totally different story. So China actually has an opportunity for a soft power push but I get the sense that I think you're right. The, the, the diplomacy is so conservative. The people are so ignorant who run and make the decisions about this soft power diplomacy that they stick to the kind of well, you know, well-trodden path on this. Uh, the, the paper is watching Hong Kong martial arts film Under Apartheid. I would say to everybody, you should read this because it's fascinating, but because it's in the world of academia, which is this weird boneheaded world of publishing, uh, most people can't actually get it, correct? I mean, you have to subscribe to a very expensive a- academic journal in order to read this stuff. Is that correct?
1: Yes, yes. At the moment, it is like that, although there is, we're in talks at the moment to get it more freely available. So I will let everyone know, kind of, once it becomes more freely available. Okay, before
0: we go, what is your favorite? Hong Kong kung fu movie from the 70s and 80s.
1: Enter the Dragon. It's oh, amazing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a boring choice, but it's so amazing. Among others, because it also features, except for Bruce Lee, it also features Jim Kelly, who was this, this kind of like African American athlete, massive afro, incredibly handsome, and also you know kind of almost as good at kung fu because who else can be as good as, at kung fu as Bruce Lee? But you know, kind of like you know on par with Bruce Lee. Um, it, it's just a, it's a crazy movie. It's just like a like the 70s exploded. It's completely lurid and insane. So If you
0: enjoy looking at sculpted men as much as Kobus does, then these are the movies for you. (laughs) So, Kobus, congratulations (laughs) again on the paper. It was an excellent read. It's absolutely fascinating. A very different aspect of the China-Africa relationship and one that is underexplored. And hopefully we'll come back to it again as you continue to do more research on this. Uh, We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staten, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The show may be over, but the conversation isn't. Eric and Kobus are continuing the discussion on Facebook. Head to facebook.com slash project where they're updating the newsfeed every four hours. Also, africachina.info is where the guys answer some of the toughest, most sensitive, even politically incorrect questions on all things related to the Chinese in Africa. That's africachina.info. And if you've got a China-Africa question that you've always wanted to know more about, just hit up Eric and Kobus by email. The address is questions at ChinaAfricaProject.com.